Hi, I'm Alex. And I'm Tara. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. Today, we're talking about 101 Dalmatians. So it's been a minute since we've posted an episode, so for my own benefit, as well as yours, I'm going to quickly recap where we left Walt Disney Productions back in March. The company released Sleeping Beauty in 1959, which caused a bit of a financial speed bump for the company. For 10 years, Walt had seen a sharp increase in his profits, thanks to the success of Cinderella and his Los Angeles theme park, Disneyland. But because of the intricate artistic direction that Ivan Earl wanted to take the picture, it took eight years to make and cost around $6 million, making it the most expensive animated feature for the company. The film did make more than $5 million at the box office, but it was still considered a financial flop. And remember, Walt has been gradually pulling away from the animation department. This has been happening since the 1940s. Walt began to mistrust his animators following the 1941 animator strike, and his interest shifted to live-action movies when he realized they were cheaper to make. He also began to focus on his new television show and then his theme park. So with his attentions on other projects, top animators ran the animation department instead. Sleeping Beauty's release spurred a greater downward trend for the animation department. Executives at Walt Disney Productions believed animation was difficult to do well while making a profit, and this is the climate of the company as it heads into the next decade. The 1960s is the start of a nearly 30-year decline in the animation department, and this isn't just for Walt Disney Productions. The animation industry as a whole was experiencing a similar slump. Big Hollywood studio empires were declining, losing money, and animation was one of the first things to feel the effect, as those departments were considered just, quote, peripheral operations. And financially, animation and cartoons didn't make financial sense, because as I've mentioned, they're expensive to make. From 1947 to 1961, a good quality short cost anywhere between $50,000 and $90,000, and studios were slashing budgets to just $6,500 by 1961. At Disney, Sleeping Beauty's financial losses caused the department to downsize. It went from having 500 artists to 75. Talent and funding were transferred to other departments, and many people got laid off. The veteran animators were growing old, and some would argue out of touch with public interest. And without a singular person spearheading the department, the quality of the output waffles over the years. Remember this, because it's going to come up a lot in our next eight episodes. For me, this new level of Walt's disinterest in the company is apparent when you look at the leadership hierarchy in 101 Dalmatians. Walt chose one person to spearhead the department, and it's someone we haven't really talked about yet, Bill Pete. Pete joined Disney toward the end of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs production. He started as an in-between animator on the Donald Duck shorts and eventually became a sketch artist, and then later helped work on the story for a bunch of films like The Three Caballeros, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, and Sleeping Beauty. In 1957, Walt gave Bill Pete the book 101 Dalmatians by Dodie Smith after he obtained the rights and told him to do something with it. This was the first project Pete would spearhead by himself. Employees noted that Pete and Walt had a 27-year on-and-off-again feud, mostly clashing because they were strong personalities with different creative visions. 
In fact, in his autobiography, Pete says he was surprised Walt put him in charge of adapting the book because they had just gotten into an argument over Sleeping Beauty. Basically, Walt didn't like the scene where the animals help Aurora and Philip fall in love in the woods. Pete said it was the only way to do it to make the relationship seem realistic. Walt said Pete had a mental block, took him off the project, and sent him to work on Peter Pan peanut butter commercials. So for most people, an action like that would seem kind of like, ah, oh, my fate is sealed. I'm off this team. We're not going to do anything of real consequence again. And yet, Walt gave Pete 101 Dalmatians to work on. So Pete does all the writing, developing, and storyboarding, and even directed voice recordings, which was unusual for the company at the time. Pete also took a non-traditional route and wrote the entire screenplay before he started to storyboard. The basic plot of the movie follows the book, but Pete definitely condensed a lot of the characters. He took out Corella's husband and her cat, as well as one of Pongo's wives. Yes, one of his wives. In the original book, Anita's dog is named Mrs. So Mrs. gives birth to the initial 15 puppies, but has a hard time feeding them. The family happens to stumble upon Perdita, a stray who's alone and struggling, so they take her in, and Perdita helps Mrs. feed the puppies. So obviously, these characters are condensed into one. And in the movie, Pete has to take out this scene where Perdita and Pongo exchange vows and have their own wedding, just like Roger and Anita. Censor board said including this scene was a big risk because some religious audiences would get angry that the movie didn't protect the sanctity of marriage, so Pete had to completely rework the scene. All my sources from people at Disney at the time say these changes are about character condensing and making the story easier to adapt. But if you notice, there's a lot going on here about gender, sexuality, and heteronormativity, so we'll get into this later. The studio refers to the three men who directed most of the animated features in the 1950s to direct 101 Dalmatians. However, Hamilton Lusk and Wilfred Jackson returned without Clyde Geronimi. Wolfgang Reitherman gets a directorial apprenticeship, which is important. He becomes a big player coming up. And Ken Anderson is the film's art director, which means he was responsible for the overall look, design, and visual tone of the film, which is notably quite different from any Disney animated feature we've seen so far, especially after that renaissance feast that was Sleeping Beauty. Anderson, along with Reitherman and Ub Iwerks, are the men who shepherd the studio into the era of Xerox animation. <laughs> Photocopies. Oh, I get into detail. <laughs> I know you do. Because I, I had a little too much fun. Okay. So when you go about and research the history behind 101 Dalmatians, it's impossible to find a resource that does not mention Xerox animation. This isn't the first film that uses this technique at the studios. Uh, as I mentioned in our previous episode, like, you know, seven months ago to the day, to be exact, because I checked, Disney included Xerox animation in Sleeping Beauty when they animated The Thorn Forest. However, 101 Dalmatians is the first Disney animated feature film that is entirely animated using Xerox. Xerography was originally called electrophotography, which means dry writing because it's a printing technique that does not use liquid chemicals. The process was invented by American physicist Chester Carlson in the 1940s, based on contributions by a Hungarian physicist. Back in the 40s, the process still took a while and required several manual steps, but after 18 years of experimentation, it became a fully automated process. And it's this automated process that the Walt Disney Productions will use in its films. So 
So if you're curious, like I was, to learn exactly how xerography worked, it's basically the same technology that's used in photocopy machines and laser printers today. So you put a piece of paper with writing or drawing or whatever on a glass, piece of glass. A lamp casts a light onto the paper through the glass, and the glass causes the light to reflect onto a cylinder drum, which is electrostatically charged by a wire. So there's a lot of like particles going, and there's a lot of energy happening. The light will reflect back onto the drum where there is white on the original paper. However, the light will absorb where there is black on the paper. So a copy basically of what is on the paper is imprinted on the cylinder with little light particles. So the cylinder then, with that in mind, rotates, carrying that electrical makeup on it, and it then rolls over some toner. So like basically ink, you know, the black stuff that you get on when you have like the printer and all that. The toner sticks to the parts where there is no electrical charge. So where the black parts are on the original paper you're trying to copy. So it recreates it. The cylinder rotates and prints that ink then onto a new piece of paper. And then it's so hot that the ink just like fuses to the paper and then hello, you have your copy. Up iWorks brings this technology to Walt Disney Productions without the intention of it replacing animation. The goal was to have it assist animators. He ends up going to the East Coast to work with the Halloid Photographic Company to adapt the technology so that animators can print their drawings directly onto cells. Remember, with cell animation, artists recreate drawings onto the cells, and then the ink and paint department uses colors to, like, color the drawings in. At this point, only black lines were possible to print onto cells, so it won't be until, like, the 1980s where animators can print colored lines. And today, if you want an example of those colored line lines being printed onto cells, that would be in a movie like The Secrets of Nim, which is a Don Bluth production. So basically, Xerox Animation copies animators' drawings directly onto a cell. This saves both time and money, because now the company does not have to pay as many workers to complete one cell. A Xerox machine could finish a thousand cells a day, while the women in the ink and paint department could produce about, like, 50. So this allows the company to save over half the cost of a picture. After Sleeping Beauty's release, you can see, like, money's tight, so this is enticing, right? Um, So executives begin to talk about eliminating the entire ink and paint department in order to try to rectify the loss. So Anderson knows this, and so he brings the idea of just using Xerox and animated features to Walt. And Walt said he could, quote, fool around all you want to, end quote, but at the end of the day, didn't love the idea. But Anderson had another motive for using Xerox animation. He thought the process would unify all drawing styles that were currently present in the studio. If you remember with Sleeping Beauty, character animators struggled to design characters that would fit with Ivan Earl's elaborate angular backgrounds. And as a result, some characters, namely Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether, did not end up matching the overall style of the film according to some people. Anderson also liked the idea of not disguising the black lines of the initial sketches. With cell animation up until this point, Walt made an effort to hide these black lines by having the ink and paint department cover them with colored paint. This was all in an effort to make the drawings look smooth and recreate realism, so it falls into that Disney formalist style. Instead of going for the artistically ambitious and recreating the physically and emotionally real, Xerox allows the studio to go more minimalist with their pictures, and that excites Anderson. Now, the company won't go as minimalist as other animation studios like UPA Productions, but backgrounds become way less elaborate, especially compared to Sleeping Beauty. 
In his book, Demystifying Disney, Chris Pallant claims the backgrounds resemble the Looney Tunes style. We see loose coloring in of the lines, so color doesn't reach the object's edge and can be extended beyond the outline. Because of this, animation historian Michael Barrier says 101 Dalmatians is, quote, radically different from Sleeping Beauty. In general, Anderson based the style of 101 Dalmatians on drawings from British cartoonist Ronald Searle. I'll include a couple of his pictures in our show notes. So characters and backgrounds were printed on separate cells, so we still have that multi-cell setup to create the illusion of depth in the film. However, it's not nearly as elaborate as the company's early films like Pinocchio and Bambi. In fact, Xerox animation rendered the multi-plane camera useless now. Additionally, animators had to go about their sketch drawings differently. Eric Larson noted he had to draw more on the nose, and that this new process reversed the work that the animators established back in the 1930s. Animators now had to draw slowly and carefully, so assistants just touched up the drawings. Michael Barrier notes that at the end of the day, the assistants bore the brunt of the change the most, because the lines had to be as clean as possible because whatever was on that page would be transferred onto the cells. We'll come back to Walt's reaction to Xerox animation in a second, because that ties in nicely with the reception of the film. I first want to mention a few more things about the production process. Notably, 101 Dalmatians is Disney's first animated feature film that takes place in modern time, which is something critics and audiences will respond positively to. Another first, Mark Davis, known for animating Snow White, Bambi, Thumper, Alice, Tinkerbell, Aurora, and Maleficent, animated Cruella by himself. If you'll remember, the company typically assigned main characters to two animators so that they could split the work more evenly. However, as I noted around the time Bambi came out, animators began to speak out against that practice because they thought it was clunky and didn't really work. And of course, I couldn't talk about 101 Dalmatians without talking about the music, purely because I have a memory of my grandma and me singing the song Corella DeVille dramatically for hours in the car as my grandpa drove us from Orlando to Tampa to visit my aunt and uncle. So Mal Levin composed the music and wrote the lyrics for the film himself, which was an odd practice for the company up until this point. He wrote three versions of the Corella song. The first one was about how she was created in a graveyard. The second one was a nonsense version that included lyrics like, you are a monster, but you're not. You're loved and hated. Uh, and then the third, which is the one that made it to the film, was created in 45 minutes. He also wrote the Canine Crunchies jingle, which, fun fact, is sung by the woman who voiced Anastasia in Cinderella, and the song Dalmatian Plantation, which we only hear a little bit of at the end of the movie. He wrote other songs, but they, at the end of the day, did not make the film. So we know by this point that Walt isn't really involved in the creation of these animated films. In fact, Bill Peet sort of became the new Ivan Earl, which basically meant he was a stand-in for Walt, or he played the role that the mass public assumed Walt played in his studio with these pictures. So then, what was Walt doing during this time? Now that Disneyland was open and popular, Walt began to pursue projects away from his studio. He was a consultant to the 1959 American National Exhibition in Moscow, and in 1960, he acted as the chairman of the pageantry committee for the 1960s Winter Olympics in California. His job was basically to design the opening, closing, and medal ceremonies. He also kind of oversaw the studio's television and film output, but as I've been saying, not to the extent that he used to. Throughout the 1960s, we really see Walt Disney Studios go from a film studio to the diversified global corporation that we know of today, but we'll get into that in our next two episodes. 
So as I've mentioned before, Walt basically handed creative control over to Bill, Pete, and Ken Anderson, saying they could do whatever they pleased. But when the time came for Walt to watch the final movie, he hated it. He hated the style of the movie, hated that you could see the sketch lines that they used to get rid of in the ink and paint department. Uh, And while he was detached from the animation department at this point, he still wanted each animated film to look different and better from the previous, a goal he established back in the late 30s when his team was animating Pinocchio. He said the Xerox process, quote, diminished the very inspiration and vitality in the animator's drawings that it was supposed to preserve, end quote. He also didn't like that the harshness of the Xerox style took away from the fantasy style of animation that became synonymous with Walt Disney Animation. Walt was so upset with the final production that he took it all out on Ken Anderson. He yelled and said that Ken would never be an art director again and then refused to speak to Ken for a year. He then went on to do what he usually does when his employees make him mad. He leaves the country around the time the film premieres. Well, I'd also like to point out, you know, that Walt, he did end up kind of forgiving Anderson for 101 Dalmatians in 1966. Anderson notes that he saw Walt, and this is kind of how it went. Walt came up to him and said, you know that thing, you know that thing you did on Dalmatians? And then he didn't say anything else. He just kind of gave Anderson a look. But Anderson knew he was forgiven. And in his opinion, he was thinking, you know, maybe like what I did on the movie wasn't so bad. So that was the last time that Anderson ever saw Walt. And then a few weeks later, Walt died. So, like, not a wholehearted apology. And not even an apology, I think most people would argue. But from what I read, Anderson did appreciate the gesture. Despite Walt's hatred for the film, 101 Dalmatians still premiered on January 25th, 1961, and was met with financial success. The film made $6.2 million at the box office, making it the eighth highest grossing film of 1961 in North America. West Side Story was the highest that year. The revenue pulled the department out of the financial slump that it was in after Sleeping Beauty's release. The reason why 101 Dalmatians made so much money is because the Xerox process cut the cost. To be exact, it cost less than two-thirds of Sleeping Beauty's cost, and it's estimated the film would have cost twice as much if the creative team added in the whole ink and paint process. So while Walt still hated the movie and hated the look of the Xerox animation, he decided to continue to allow his team to use it, mostly because it was such a money saver. And Xerox would become the animation style of the studio until about 1989. Nowadays, we don't really see a ton of 2D animation using it, but it's still widely used in like anime and things. So I know I talked about the ink and paint department before on this podcast, uh, most extensively during our episode on Dumbo when I talked about the animator strike. And just, I know I mentioned it a bunch throughout, but just to summarize, the department was made up of mostly women. Their job was to add color to cells that animators drew on. Um, so obviously, you know, the Xerox in process would kind of make their jobs useless. Notably, they also were the lowest paid out of everyone at the studio for the most part. The company did fire the women in this department. This was part of a larger company condensing. They couldn't afford to keep everyone after Sleeping Beauty. And as I mentioned, the studio ended up firing about 400, 500, a majority of their artists across the company. Some were offered jobs in other departments, but not everyone wanted to stay. In the ink and paint department, only two out of 45 people stayed. And so, you know, the departments basically went away for good at this point. The film was also a critical success. 
Many said it was the best film since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and the closest to a real Disney film in years. Just to give you a quick overview of what people said, Howard Thompson from the New York Times, melodramatic chase but warm, needs more songs. Variety said painstaking creative effort but not as enchanting. Time, wittiest, charming, and least pretentious feature. And notably, the author of the original book loved the film and loved the animation style. But later on, when 101 Dalmatians was re-released in 1991, contemporary reviews were not as positive. Roger Ebert with the Chicago Sun-Times said it's not in the League of Snow White or Pinocchio, but that it is a fun and entertaining feature and it works for its target family audience. Craig Berman from MSNBC said it is the worst children's film of all time. The plot is nutty and Cruella's fashion sense is bad. (laughs) I love how that's what they noted in this. The film was received well internationally. It was the most popular film in France in 1961, and it's still remembered and cherished today, spawning an animated sequel, a live-action spin-off starring Glenn Close, as well as a live-action villain origin prequel, Cruella, starring Emma Stone. Have not seen that. In general, there's a lot of hype around Cruella, as she's ranked number 39 on the AFI Top 100 Villains list. is great uh parts of this movie yeah i'd agree i'd say for the most part like there are a lot of moments that i enjoyed watching um yeah athena my dog loved this movie you tweeted about it i did she um every time pongo was on screen her (laughs) eyes were just watching what was happening (laughs) yeah that's so funny because it like uh, you tweeted that right at about the time I got to the point where all the all the puppy where all seventeen of the dogs were watching. Oh, the canine TV. crunchies, yeah, yeah, the canine crunchies bit with the show before it. Um, and I'm like, dogs don't do that. I've never seen a dog just watch TV that intently for that long. And then you tweeted that. I'm like, well, guess not. Fuck. <laughs> and if you know my dog, it's like very out of character. It's very out of character. She is, like, the most sporadic, chaotic chaos chaos cloud complete chaos um but yeah i'd say all in all fairly enjoyable and i'd say i quite appreciated the pacing of the movie i thought that the scenes were really well planned out they didn't feel too short and yet i didn't feel like we were sitting on them for too long right um and i thought that the progression of events and like the progression of the um the 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 tension and like the conflict worked really well um so it, it i think for me that really helped me watch it in all because i think like with the movies where yeah. we've complained about the pacing i get distracted by other things right absolutely um i wouldn't say i was nothing here was like riveting you mm-hmm. know but it was still engaging i think the most interesting part of all of this for me I, like I talk I'm the opening credits person. We we have we have well established this at this point. Yes. Um I really like the opening credit sequence for this. I knew you would. Um one, it's really nice to have an opening credit sequence without fucking lyrics behind it. Mm-hmm. I think this is the first one. Other uh, Sleeping Beauty might not have had them, but like no, they I had a song it... right off the top. They had a song right off the top, so it if they didn't, it blur- blended in with that sequence. A chorus did I know you. 
in the opening credits. Right. Yeah. So this is the first one without actual lyrics to it then. Um, it's a breath of fresh air. It's great um, because it, it, it feels like less of a storybook and more like a to- like it, it's more of a, a tone setting thing. And also the opening feels like test animation. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that we are we are we are working f- we are using the opening sequence to work through how we're going to do the rest of this movie in front of you. And it kind of rules. So the transitions between all the different like scene I don't want to call them scenes but like moments in the opening yeah. felt very pink elephants on parade. Yeah. Um in that it was very loose the way they went from point A to point B. Yeah. They used a lot of the elements in the scenes of point A to like transform to then get to point B. Yeah. Um which made it fun and then you just have like dogs wagging their tail, you know, and Yeah. It's cute. I will say. I will say it's also very refreshing to watch one of these that doesn't have the fucking cultural content warning in front of it. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, because this is the first one in a while, I feel like. Like, Sleeping Beauty, I don't think, had one. But Sleeping Beauty... Sleeping Beauty's such a fucking outlier in, like, Disney's kind of output anyways that it doesn't really feel like that was uh, a real part of it. But, like, if we go back, like, the one before that was Lady and the Tramp, and then before that was Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. So... Those both had had it. Yeah, Cinderella did not, um... But then we hit all of the, those package films. All the package films were just rancid. <laughs> uh, same with the Good Neighbors. Like yeah. we we've been in the we've been in the. <laughs> I was about to say racist fun time, but that's not what <laughs> that's that's bad. No, racism's not fun. Racism's not fun. It's bad. Don't don't do it. Um, but we've been in that 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 mode of Disney for a while, and it's nice to get a re- a bit of a refreshing break from that yeah uh not to say there's not problematic elements of this movie um like but it's also nice to not come into this recording being like all right racism instead we just get a a a fat a a fat puppy who's constantly hungry well that's Um, like the only reason why he's there right like that is like kind of because there's 15 puppies right but they find little like i think they highlight three or four of them so it's Uh patch lucky there's freckles he's the one with all like the spots on his head on his face yeah patch lucky freckles rolly and then they mentioned penny just yeah but like her one defining characteristic is that she is the one female dog who speaks that is not perdita right yeah and now that you say that i'm like oh yeah i guess i guess that was the case um but they do find a way like even though not all 15 are like named Mm -hmm. uh they do find a way like they're all pretty visually distinct. Oh yeah, like, it's it's kind of impressive, and like some of the 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 ninety some of the ninety nine or math is hard. I'm just going to say ninety nine. Some of the other ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, ninety nine minus fifteen. Do the math and get back. Eighty four. Um, fuck. Okay, I'm <laughs> stupid. <laughs> some of the other eighty four that talk like. Are, are pretty distinctive but like the, there's enough visual difference between them that you don't feel like it is literally copy pasted well and i think it's like it part of it is i think just how the design of the dogs but i think a lot of it also is the expression of the dogs and the way the dogs like sit or like you know carry themselves or like even the voice yeah. acting that distinguishes them enough like the line right. the, of the one unnamed dog when she goes she's gonna make coats out of us like that stayed in my head forever and i remember the exact look of that dog how sad she Uh looked the way she was sitting like 
and like even though she doesn't have a name yeah that's like they they're they're all distinctive yes uh which is cool um they're also just cute they are very cute. Like when uh, when the they thing. were yeah. walking in the snowstorm and they're all so little and tired and then Bongo's like, turn around and they look and they're like, we got to walk toward the wind. And then they like struggle to walk toward the wind. I was like, oh my heart. Yeah. It's just the walking single file. Yeah. I'm just like, this is, this is like, this is like out of a war film. These <laughs> poor <was>. dogs. <laughs> it did feel like, like it was fellow, World fe- War One. Yeah. It's the fucking fellowship cross trying to cross the mountains while Saruman's bringing f- snow down on top of them. And I'll just take having your the word worst for it. fucking time. Yeah, I know you will. Yeah. Someone out there gets it. Someone, Someone does. out there gets it. <laughs> um, but even on the topic of dog mannerisms that I liked, when Pongo was like pulling Roger through Regent's Park. Oh, it's so good. I felt that. Like I when yeah. last time I watched this movie, I didn't have a dog. And now I have a husky. And that is literally every time I put a leash yeah. on her, that is what it is like. Uh, I'm Andy Rodriguez. I am based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I am, uh, you know, what I do, I am currently a, a care coordinator um, with a health insurance company. And uh, what I like to do, um, you know, I love movies. I love, you know, back in the before times, you know, I loved going to the movie theater. I had movie pass and uh, the Alamo Draft House subscription when they had that and things like that. Um, and I also just enjoy collecting a lot of movies. I have a, a decent physical media collection um, that is always growing too much. And yeah, uh, that's kind of like the general gist of who I am as a as a person. <laughs> I'm introducing Andy at this point in the podcast because while we were talking about 101 Dalmatians, he mentioned having an emotional response to the same scene where the puppies are walking through the snowstorm. Um, and then like the whole escape sequence. Um, and, you know, when Perdita and Pongo find the Dalmatians and are like leading them through the snow and like... They're all like a testament to like the character animation. Like they look like really tired and like brutalized by this blizzard. And it's it, it was like genuinely like when I was watching it, I was like, oh, like I'm upset, like watching these poor like dogs like try and get through this blizzard. Like it's sad. Yeah. And then you have yeah. Rolly who's just like, I'm hungry, mom. I want food. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> I'm cold. And it's like. Oh no. My nose is froze and my toes yeah. are froze. And you're just like You're just like, I know I have a dog and I'm just like, ah <laughs> He wasn't our only guest who talked about loving the puppies. Gosh, you picked the wrong person to do this podcast. Um because <laughs> y'all both know me. I do. Um so I that'd be my full name, like my government name. Is no whatever, one going to answer? Whatever you want. Okay, whatever feels like, comfortable. It's like, is no one going to answer that question? Um, <laughs> it's comfortable. Uh, you know, Jenna. Um, 23, going on 24. Uh, tired, non-coffee addict. Um, you know, growing up in um, the state of Texas. That's where I am from. So for the audience, because I know y'all cannot see me. I am black. 
I know I sound low white sometimes. And that is pretty much all you need to know about me. Um, I hate everything and love everything. And that's literally the best way I can describe anything that I do. Jenna is my roommate and Athena's mom. A majority of our relationship is her recapping movies and television shows she watches that I have not seen and then giving me her opinion. Because she lives with me, she heard about this podcast a lot. And when I found out she's seen most, if not all, Disney animated films, I knew I wanted to get her on the show. I had not an obsession with this movie like some people but i did watch it a lot as a kid like i remember every time it was on the disney channel i watched it and then i owned it on vhs so yes for anybody who doesn't know what that is it is a cassette tape and if you don't know what that is i cannot explain past that like me and tara jenna loved the puppies um i really love the dogs they're all my favorite um I can't remember his name. Not Lucky, but Lucky's great. Lucky's one of my, he's one of my favorites. Granted, he's one of the only ones who get a speaking role in the movie. Um, he is really good. And then I cannot remember for the life of me, the other one's name, who is always hungry. Rolly. Yes, because Rolly and I are the one and the same. We are always hungry. I am never not eating. Um, so <laughs> when he was like, mother, I am hungry. I was like, girl, you same. And it's three in the morning when I'm watching these movies, but I'm so I'm not gonna indulge in food. But yes, completely understand that I too am hungry. Um, I also relate to all the siblings who are trying to watch the television and Lucky is in the way. Like, yeah, I was not that kid, but I knew kids who were like that, and I would get very very annoyed. But she did have a critique of one of the scenes involving the puppies. There's also, like, the conversation of, like, blackface that's also in this film, which I did not recognize as a child. Go into that a little bit more. Um, so it's, like, the scene where, um, the kids are trying to... So, like, we have traveled through the snow of northern London, or whatever, the countryside near London, trying to get all of 99 of these puppies back home to the house where there were only 15 um and we're doing that and we have made it pretty close and the last step is to hitch a ride on a truck from the countryside to london proper and pongo takes them into this barn and one of the puppies just happens to like fall into like soot which i don't even know where the soot's coming from but like he fell into some soot and he comes out and his little butt's black and he's like He's like, oh, the perfect disguise. Like, they'll never want us if we're brown. So, like, they all dive into the the things. And then only when they get wet is it that, like, she's like, wait, they're Dalmatians and they're disguising themselves. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's, like, because I have the common sense of, a, of, like, an actual person. But if I'm, like, looking for, like, 101 dogs or not 99 dogs, and suddenly I see puppies around the same age, but I see so many of them. Like I keep seeing the same amount of puppies go past me. And I'm, and I know the puppies are in this city. I don't, I, I feel like I would have been like, yeah, the puppies are disguising themselves. Granted, I know somebody can look at this and be like, it's not blackface because they're incognito. And I was like, yeah, I guess not. I guess you could argue that but I'm not going to sit here and argue with someone when I know how I feel about it. 
Yeah. Okay, that's what I was gonna say. The fact that like the way they convey emotionality mm-hmm. and like expression through um through the the dog the through the way the dogs are like animated and built like conveying very human expressions through non-human creatures is fucking hard um and like they've done it before but something about this really stuck out to me and i think it's the fact that um we had that sequence you have that sequence at the start of the movie mm-hmm. where pongo is watching all of the women and their dogs walk by and how they're basically like look we can convey the same vibe in the the motion of these two completely like these two different differently built entities mm-hmm. like the, the the woman walking her pug moves the exact same way her pug does but it's a completely like they move the same but they have to move different you know because bipedal motion is different than quadrupedal motion right not to mention and it's you have yeah. to keep in t- mind like the shoes the woman's wearing the clothes whereas like you know how fast is that dog like how does the dog sp- like every dog has a different walk too so uh-huh. But I feel like that was it almost is, like yeah. a good exercise in how they, like, it, I almost feel like it was an exercise. They were sitting down and they were like, how can mm-hmm. we figure out how to make these dogs appear, I want to say, hu- like, human-like almost, you know, like, or at least mm-hmm. convey emotions that humans would recognize um, and, like, mannerisms or, like, just how they carry themselves. Um, I found it very enjoyable. I just think it's, you know, it's cute, like... It, it's like the dogs match their owner theory, which I find to be pretty true, fairly true, you know. But you can. I interrupted you. You can continue. No, it's it's good. I was I was done. Okay. So. so um. But on on the note on the note of that that sequence, I um where he's watching all the 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 women and their dogs walk by, and he's like trying to scope out a me- like a mate quote unquote for Roger and himself. Uh, I think it, it, it's, it's interesting like how it characterizes Pongo's perception of Roger and what he thinks Roger wants mm-hmm. um, and what he wants. Um, but on, on that same, by that same token, it's just like, ah, yes, heteronormativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also just a little bit of like like must be paired with like yeah kind of like what we talked about in fantasia with that centaur scene uh-huh. you know it's like yeah we as an audience will, yeah. know that the first like five people that pongo sees are not gonna be good matches for roger not necessarily through his commentary but we can just tell on site right because we mm-hmm. as an audience are like those don't match right right but then the the shit that Pongo's doing with like the dogs and basically as soon as he sees a Dalmatian, he just goes, Oh, <laughs> uh, and I think that's a little, a little, I, I get why I get, I get it. I get it. But also just like, if you, if you dig just below the surface, it's, it's a little bit like, Hmm, you know, elaborate just, I don't I, I I it's it's it is like the centaur thing of, from Fantasia, right? Like the the like must be paired with like don't 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 mix. Don't mm-hmm. mix. Uh be, be with your own kind because like the 
the poodle and the pug are perfectly adorable animals. Uh, and same with the 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 painter lady's dog, uh, which I don't know the the breed of, but it's just it's it's it the reactions he has, but uh, when seeing those other dogs versus seeing the one other Dalmatian on the road or uh, on on the street is they're so drastically different that it's it's a little it's it, it stands out as a little odd to me i can't mm. quite articulate more than that except like i'm not i'm not gonna go so far as to like deem it racist um but it's it's just a little a, li- a little suspicious uh but that's also just me it's also I well i think the one thing that did stand out to me wasn't necessarily like a race thing but i think it was also just kind of like how you know like the the notion that guys are into you with their eyes first you know like they say like men are visual Mm -hmm. creatures women are you know more like mental you know simulators so i think that is like kind of maybe what rubbed me the wrong way is this idea that like pongo without really like knowing any of the people like made these Mm -hmm. like assumptions right right um based on first appearances and you know i do think that they obviously had to make the the women and their dog owners such distinct characters so that anita and perdita stood out Mm -hmm. you know because you want that build up but at the same time it's like it it erases any sort of room for nuance and that's something that i noticed in this movie is there's not a lot of nuance at all it's a very much like a cut and dry characters movie it's very cut and dry it's very it's very much like these are good people these are bad people there's not a lot of room in between Is that, it's like the way I'm like I cannot remember what her what his I feel bad not knowing her name I'm gonna look it up while I'm talking. Perdita. Mm, no, that's the dog. I'm talking about the the, the, the oh, wife. The girl's name. See. Roger and. I really want to say. Hammerstein. <laughs> <laughs> I was like I really want to say Jane, but I know that's false. Um, we're looking at. Anita, that's what it is. That's it. But yeah. like Roger and Anita, Anita darling. Yeah, that's yeah. This was a random moment in our interview with Jenna. Basically, while talking about Anita and Cruella's friendship, Jenna could not remember Anita's name. And you can tell neither could me or Tara. We ended up watching the movie close to six months later, and I can't say our take on the character was any more positive. Before I get on to Cruella, I mm. do think it's very funny that like Anita is drawn very pretty, but she's a very bog standard white woman. Oh my god, she's so boring. I said she. She's so boring, well, which is why, which is why I think like, which is part of why I think that sequence kind of rubbed me the wrong way mm-hmm. because it's like really, really, <laughs> she's so boring. You could have that cool artsy looking lady, but you want her? <laughs> her? I wrote down the, that she the has preppy lady. Really? She has like Cinderella cadences and Cinderella damsel mannerisms uh-huh. which honestly is like a jab to, is a disservice to cinderella right, because yes. we fa- as we found like she's a far more nuanced character than we realized Gave going into the for. movie yeah but like i think anita is what common culture perceives cinderella to be i would agree you know what i'm saying because like yeah. i i was trying to think about it and i was like 
I mean, she's sitting down with all these papers while Roger's playing music. So to me, I was like, oh, like she must be the breadwinner of the family, right? Nope. But like, we don't know what she does. She had to do something before Roger. She couldn't have just been living like on her own with no source of income. Yeah, I don't know. Because like... But also, like, I feel like she has to be the breadwinner because he just sits up there writing fucking jingles all day. And they own a house near Regent's Park. And as, like... Fucking okay. I've okay. lived in London. That, that isn't okay. a bougie area. Like, right. even for okay. the 1950s. Primrose Hill, bougie area. <laughs> right. Okay. But that that also rubbed me the wrong fucking way. Because Pongo makes a big deal about how, like, oh, it's it's good for two couples just starting out. It's it's a it's a bit it's a bit of a pick, fixer up. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. Like it's it looks a little jank on the outside, but that's because y'all are using fucking Xerox ass animation and everything's line arty as hell. Which by the way, looks incredible. Well you fucking wrong on this one, bud. This looks great. This looks so good. The couple of frames where like a head turns too quickly and you can still see the sketch lines, fucking in incredible shit just the best it rules can we get to that in a minute because i have a lot of thoughts on that too um okay yeah yeah yeah. can we yeah let's keep complaining about how the movie tries to act like they're poor when they're very clearly you know that's something that was so odd to me like the whole notion of commerce and the exchanging of goods for services like goods and services Uh for money is completely it's not touched on at all like the only really indications of wealth that we get is the fact that cruella you know comes from money because her family owns a freaking country estate like she's in some jane austen novel like did you catch what it's called by the way the deville the hell house it's called hell hall hell hall her name is deville her name is devil and she lives in hell hall movie the, the, this 101 Dalmatians walks into a room of of screenwriters and just screams, "I know you people that use subtext. You're all cowards." It's just it's 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 just on the page. It's right there. Well, and it's so interesting because especially as I've mentioned, like the intention was like, okay, we're gonna do a modern film, right? And I think something that's so characteristic of England pre-modern times, right, is this like whole like upper middle class country estate culture that we see in so much media right it's that idea of like you know you live in a country house and like you there's the grounds and you go walk around the country and all that and they're actively trying to show like it's decrepit and dying but it's not completely dead right so like the house is still there it's still usable like there's still lights and television but like the infrastructure's broken there's holes in the walls there's holes in the glass not to so, mention the other character that we see in the country is the colonel. Like, you can tell he's old. Uh-huh. So he comes with that era, right? But he's incompetent. He bumbles around. He has all these ideas. But luck- like the cat sergeant's like, that's not going to work. So he and Captain do their own thing, right? They kind of just accept that, right. like, he's stuck in the past, right? Uh-huh. So it's like, obviously, that isn't that whole notion of that sort of wealth from the past isn't dead because Cruella still exists and I believe she is a product of that like she inherited Uh a bunch of wealth obviously but then like it just kind of like stops there right so like if we if we double back to what I said about um I've talked about this numerous times in the past because it's a motif that Disney likes to use. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll I'll pull specifically from Cinderella here, but it it pops up in other stuff as well. Uh, Lady Tremaine like gets like takes over like the the wealth and like the 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 class status from uh, Cinderella's dad ripped to a real one. Uh, (laughs) And 
and then proceeds to just squander it and the house begins to decay and Mm. collapse around it Mm -hmm. and like she's presenting as high class and high status but all the markers that would traditionally be used to indicate that are collapsing around her to indicate like the hollowness of that wow um which 101 dalmatians does again when hell hall is completely decrepit Mm -hmm. like yes it's still standing and it's still got a basic functionality as in the lights are on mm-hmm. the heat's not on the like you shut the door too hard and the ceiling caves in there's holes in the wall that they're able to get the dogs out of but then on the flip side of that you have Roger and Anita who are like living in a bougie ass neighborhood but like the house does look very cramped mm-hmm. and from the outside it looks kind of not well upkept but then inside it's spotless mm-hmm. it's flawless it's really goddamn pretty mm-hmm. and it's well kept so it's it's the notion of like like the the cl- the, the class representations are almost inverted there of like they're living in a smaller cramped space in the city, but they've got class status to back it up because they're good people. Mm. Whereas on the other side, you've got Cruella who is fronting all of this wealth and, and status, which is what the big fur coat is as well, but it's rancid and she carries that rancidity everywhere she goes because of one, how she's designed under the coat of just being this spindly skeleton of a woman, Mm -hmm. but two, the fucking the fucking cigarette fumes wafting around her like literal poison gas. Yeah, that she's just complete like she is just a rancid demon of a person. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's interesting because then what it does is it takes the blame off of like society, right, mm-hmm. and bl- puts it on the individual person, right? Right, like you are responsible for, like everything like how you are and your situation is basically entirely on you because at Uh the end of the movie you know because pongo and perdita rescued all 99 puppies what does that allow them to do well they can upgrade and get their dalmatian plantation right which Mm. i guess is like what pongo was thinking when he said it's a nice little upstart right whereas i see that house and i'm like i want to live there like that looks great Uh, dalmatian plantation yeah no thank you but i guess like do not need that still is a sign of that upward mobility right but at Uh the same time you think like okay but as an audience you trust it's not gonna end up like the hell hall right and because you're bringing up upward nobility upward mobility and we've you've already mentioned austin Mm. like think about think about the social climbers in austin novels who are climbing because like their new money Mm. or new wealth and don't have the class to back it up yeah like uh fuck who are the who's who's the annoying family in um I guess you could say the Bennets are kind of the annoying family. I would say Mrs. Bennett. But yeah, Mrs. Bennett. But then also like Collins. Yeah. Who was given that station and doesn't necessarily have the class stature of like personhood to back it up. Right. Whereas someone like all of the most of the Austin protagonists have an air of like class and understanding of this. Right. Yeah. Because she comes from very humble backgrounds, but has that. Has the, has the understands societal conventions mm-hmm. and is willing to inter and is going to inter like engage with it appropriately. Yes, there's nothing wrong with so like it's it's less of a thing of like you will be rewarded with class for already being classy. Mm-hmm. 
the system works as intended. Yes. It is those people that are actively trying to climb the social ladder that don't deserve to be there. Right. Which is why the people in Austin novels that get dinged for that really hard are always the merchant class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when you think about, like... Well, I guess... The only one, I guess, would... Yeah, because, like, definitely Wickham, I would say. like, But, like, Willoughby just... Mm-hmm. He just he still is Willoughby. You know, he just kind of gets to... He loses yeah. Marianne, right? But, like, there's no indication that he really gets dinked down at all. Unless I'm... Yeah. Re- I haven't revisited Sense and Sensibility in a while, but... If I recall correctly, fucking Willoughby's the, the self-described libertine and also a rapist. So, uh... <laughs> terrible human. him get him getting all of his shit aired out uh and getting like his attempt because like willoughby is still like army so he's is it, he? isn't he no that's remember. colonel We're brandon gonna, right but that's the thing like oh, uh, i don't think he is if i had the patience i would pull up the fucking paper i wrote on sense and sensibility mm-hmm. um but i i just don't have the patience that's for fair. it um wikipedia i'm not giving you money <laughs> no <laughs> pay me oh yeah no 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 no. yeah willoughby is not military he's got a small estate mm-hmm. and expects to inherit his aunt's larger estate so he is he is trying to climb up higher right he's he's trying to get out of like middle gentry and into like Upper nobility gen- that makes sense yeah okay so the implication then is he's gonna just stay in middle but we uh, yeah he will stay there he will not get he to go st- upward yeah. but he doesn't no. necessarily get like knocked down at the end I, of the day i i I have not. I have also not read Sense and Sensibility in a while, but I I, I seem to recall things not going particularly well for him. See, so. I haven't read it in a while, but I watched the movie recently, and the last thing you see of him is he's on his horse watching Marianne and Colonel Brandon be happy, and then he's just sad and rides away. That's fair. Yeah, but anyway, change and whatnot. I yeah. digress. <laughs> we digress. This has been this has been the Jane Austen hour. <laughs> uh, but um. It, it is nice to know how much of that I still just have on call. Right. <laughs> but, um, yes, yeah, so... Literature degrees. What? Literature degrees. <laughs> so fun. I've read too many books. Using that master's. Using it for for this and nothing else. <laughs> Anyways, sorry. You're good. So, regular Jane Austen tangent aside, the point Tara was making was that the settings in Disney films reflect the morals of the characters who reside in them. Now, he didn't say this outright, but Andy also noticed this correlation when watching the film. I, I, I did wonder, you know, re-watching the movie, like, they, uh, they show, like, the hell house and, like, the state of disrepair in it. This time around, like, I wondered, oh, like, did Cruella DeVille just, like, take the hell house and say like oh yeah this is my family's home i'm definitely a part of this um i i definitely did not just like squat in this place and then claim it as mine uh it it does have a little bit of that um kind of like uncomfortable like slightly nastiness to it that i mentioned that i kind of like in some of the older disney movies mm-hmm. um like the whole the whole portion in uh I, in the hell house i feel like you know it's this like kind of gr- grimy rundown place that i feel like you don't see in a lot of these disney movies it's it's an unpleasant environment uh for the most part and you know you have these two henchmen who are like 
you know, they are played for comic relief, but they are like legitimately like kind of like nasty, mean guys um, to an extent. And I I really like that um, in the just just the sense that there is like kind of a legitimate feeling of peril. I guess anything else then about how this movie handles class and economy? Um, I mean, they've got a housekeeper. Right. Uh, she rules. Oh, she's so cool. She's great. Um, but it's another one of those things of like, Pongo's like, yeah, we're doing our best. It's a small house. So it's, it's good for just starting out. By the way, here's the housekeeper. <laughs> yeah, like, and it, like when I was watching that, everything in me was like, you have a great situation right now, which makes me, great. again, think that Anita has some sort of, and I think like in other Cruella or other 101 Dalmatians media yeah um anita is like the working woman in the relationship if i remember correctly i may be totally wrong so who knows but i feel like she has to like because they even mentioned at the end of the film like the corella deville song is like roger's hit you know Which so that's so funny assume that is presumptuously like when they're getting the money so then how can they how else can they afford it but then again we have to think about it. the one indication that we get assuming anita has a job is from the fact that before tea time she is sitting with her like business glasses on and she's going Doing over stuff. papers also the fact that she has a spring suit specifically which like that could just be what they call yeah. them but like that to me read very like businessy right like yeah i am in the business like, world yeah. like she's already got money to some degree yes exactly like that also she- roger oh, and also roger clearly has to have some kind of money because that apartment he's living in at the start also like, isn't bad jesus christ my dude not bad that window quite oh amazing yes so i love how fucking i i do love the fact that like roger can't keep his living space organized because like i'm like yeah 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 same same because like i don't know i guess it's just the fucking artist artist nonsense in my brain just being like nope need a messy space to make sense of things well that kind of brings me to another thing i noticed and that's just kind of how men are in this film because I found Roger to be an interesting case study, all in all. Um, uh-huh. He isn't kind of like what you would consider your typical male lead. I wouldn't, I don't even know if he'd be a lead. I think Pongo's technically the lead, but I would consider him yeah. a lead, right? But what, like, what really kind of got my brain ticking on this was the scene where he stands up to Cruella and tells her like she can't have the puppies but it's kind of painful to watch right because typically like Uh in Disney films you think of the guy like standing up to the woman you know putting his foot down putting her in her place right but he like stutters you know he stands still right and he's firm in his convictions but he's not necessarily like but like yeah but like that's very very obviously an act right because oh yeah she leaves and he's still standing like bolt upright when Anita goes to hug him. Uh-huh. And like he doesn't relax. No. Like he's petrified the entire time and it's very clearly all he can do to not run away in that moment. Oh yeah. So it's like so I thought that was like I I I appreciated that, you know, cuz it shows like yeah, I just appreciated that. Um but another thing that I noticed and this kind of like is going to kind of draw into our Cruella discussion. Yeah. But 
Cruella is like constantly working to emasculate him and all the other men around her, right? So like one of the things that she does is she oh like openly insults his profession as a musician, right? She's like, Oh Anita, like you're gonna do all this stuff on that big paycheck from Roger's little songs and like he's pissed about it which like yeah like you work really hard to be that good at piano that you can just pick up a tune and like sit down and play it right like that takes skill but like she's just constantly working to put him down um and she like men just kind of like she just walks all over men so like she does that with roger and then with horace and jasper like you know they kind of are like i don't want to do what she wants us to do but they always fall in line with what she wants to do right she tells them you are going to skin those puppies tonight and they're like well we'll watch the finish of what's my crime but then we'll go and we'll go skin the puppies like we'll do what you say right um but at the end of the day like it's done one so that we sympathize with roger but then like we also are oddly sympathizing with horace and jasper but at the end of the day all that done to continue to drive home that Cruella is the mean one here. She is the villain. She is the one you are supposed to be against right. at the yes. end of the day. Because, like, and you also like Maleficent. You never get the sense that, like, she could be stopped, right? Like, Roger stands right. up to her, and I was kind of surprised that she backed down just like that, right? You're like, uh-huh. you are towering over this man right now, and you're just like, all right, bye, I'm mad, but bye. Like, she comes up with a plan, right? So the, her only right. downfall, really, is her idiot henchman. Our guests who spoke about 101 Dalmatians all had fairly positive things to say about Cruella, which surprised me at first, but I was excited to follow their thought processes and see why they felt this way. I want to make a quick note that we did most of these interviews in the lead up to Emma Stone's Cruella movie hitting theaters, so that's going to come up a lot in these discussions. Andy praised the performance, saying it added some much needed energy to the film. It's a very magnetic performance, and I feel like Otherwise, um, I don't think as much as I enjoy 101 Dalmatians, I don't think it would be nearly as remembered fondly if you don't have Cruella DeVille as that kind of like center point in that movie. No, I think that makes sense because I'm thinking I'm trying to think about it. Like, think if there's any character that has a distinct personality, you know, something to like, like latch on to or remember and really like everyone's pretty straight low key yeah yeah Yeah. no one's really like catches your attention at all right yeah it's like oh which i guess you kind of have to have like a bit of a neutral slate in order to like throw her on there and have it not be just like an attack on the senses all the time you know to keep it and i guess just to show like in terms of the movie that she is crazy Right, yeah. like, because you have to. She has to, like, she's the only one who really is as all over the place as she is. So to show that she's the only one, and that every dog and human around her isn't like that, you know, it kind of like sends the message to the audience, like, oh, that's bad. That's not normal. Like, we're not supposed to like that. Right. Right. She's a very, as a villain, she's very entertaining. And I like that a lot. I'm I'm trying to say this in a way where I don't sound like someone who wants to see the Cruella Deville movie because <laughs> it's very because <laughs> the idea that they're making a Cruella Deville movie is ridiculous to right, me. Right. Because um, she she wants to skin Dalmatians. Like I don't know what you do with that character. 
<laughs> in a feature length movie. But as a villain yeah. in 101 Dalmatians, she's very entertaining. How so? Um, just, you know, she she's definitely in that um line of like very very camp uh kind of vamp villains within the Disney movies. Like I you I feel like you can definitely see like the heritage from that character down to like Ursula in the Little Mermaid mm-hmm. of just like this very or like Scar in the Lion King of just like um you know somewhat coded uh queer coded characters who are just very over the top and very the most at all times um yeah would you say Corella is queer coded because she's like an older single woman or like where do you get the queer reading from um i mean there's a little bit of that and there's a little bit of the idea of just like queer being anything outside of like not just specifically like lgbt but just like anything that's outside of the taste and norms of just like contemporary um you know heteronormative society including like age and um single status and things like that i think not necessarily that, like, you know, Cruella DeVille is queer in an LGBT sense, but she's, like, definitely feels like an outsider mm. in a sense. Okay. Okay. Yeah. For Jenna, the wants-to-turn-puppies-into-coats motivation was a bit more upsetting. However, she also recognized the underlying misogyny that works to present Cruella as the antagonist. One thing that I uh, definitely did not think about when I was growing up was like the low-key uh like there's always like sexism in like a lot of movies but like there's the low-key like the low-key and high-key sexism against uh Cuella Deville she is not great so I understand why we didn't like her but like what was really funny it was not funny what kind of annoying was the first time I think his name is Roger even meets her He's like, nah, get her the hell out of here. And his wife's like, she's not that bad. Like, I know she's kind of like lost in the sauce. Like watching it again, there's like evidently something going on because I feel like you have to be like some kind of twisted to want to turn like animals into clothing. So, and yeah. And as a kid, I thought that you just like, shave the fur off and as an adult knowing how you actually make things like that no no i don't think i could consciously do that and roger's like no she's insane and i don't trust her which is like very fair like she you probably shouldn't trust her but still like it feels feels rude i didn't even you know what i didn't realize i didn't realize that roger was a singer like it's like that was his job yeah like that was like his major like plot point was that he was a singer like and i was like i don't understand and then he makes like a whole song based on like his disdain for cruella deville and apparently it's like a number one hit because he's made a bunch of money off of it and like how does cruella feel about this like how does she feel to be the muse for a song where we're just supposed to see her and get a sudden chill like how would I feel if someone made a song about me like that? I would hate it. That's what I, I was. Yeah. And nowadays he'd probably get sued. <laughs> and that's why I feel like bad for Cruella a little bit. 
very slightly, very, very slightly. Like again, you're trying to kill puppies to make a, a coat that you already have. How many Dalmatian coats do you need? Cause like, we don't really go in, de- like she's very surface level. Like all we know about her is that um, she's friends with Anita that from our, from our standpoint, and she really likes Dalmatian puppies. And that is as much as we know about her. And we get that she's like crazy simply because like who concocts a scheme to kidnap your friend's puppies? One. And then two, once you kidnap them, who kidnaps 84 more puppies to make a coat? So like that's like the extent of all we know about her. And technically she's not even stealing the puppies herself. She has hired henchmen. Like, so... And we get we know more about them than we do about her the entire time. We know that she's probably wealthy, and that's about it, because she's wearing Dalmatian clothes, which I don't know why. On the black market, you can make a lot of money for that, apparently. I guess. Um, in general, would you think she, like, when you compare her to other Disney villains, do you think, like, how do you think she stacks up? Um, you know, she, um... When it comes to like Disney villains, I kind of think which one would I be terrified of if I were to exist um, in this universe? And you know, Quella Deville's were low on that list. I have like Dr. Facilier up there. Yzma's a little up there simply because like she has potions. Like I don't know what's in them, but I don't want to be a cat. I really don't. Well, it me. sounds like it's also there's a lack of like a supernatural element there that we get with a lot of Disney villains, yeah. Especially the three that you just mentioned. So, do you think maybe that like just because she is, you know, just like a regular woman? Maybe, maybe, maybe. maybe. But I also know that I'm not the target of her, um, like the target of her, um, not revenge, but like anger or whatever. Like I'm not the target of it. Like she wants. She wants dogs. Granted, like, I don't own a Dalmatian. And I, one time I ever wanted to own a Dalmatian is when I watched this movie. So, like, I have no dog in this fight, literally. So, yeah, I don't think, I think that's why. I think it's less because she's a woman and more because, like, I'm not what she's after. Morgan, who we've talked to in a few of our previous episodes, was the biggest Cruella stan that we interviewed. To her, Cruella is not crazy, but an excellent villain, and really not as bad as the movie or common conception believes her to be. She's a product of the anti-feminist ideas of the post-war era, which was when the film was made. Well, I think like a lot of people forget that like the character of Cruella, she's not just like a random lady who like just shows up at Anita's house and starts yelling at her. She's friends with Anita. Like I think like in like the the remake where she's like the live action, it's her boss. But in the animated film, like Corella is just a friend. I'm not saying that she's a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely feel like some of the things that she says could be from a good friend could be said better. But I think that she has some good points that she, if she's looking out for her friend. And I like I think like I said like I think a lot of people know. excuse me i think like a lot of people don't realize that like whenever they're watching the movie or like even thinking about the movie or like thinking back to it like she's not just like a random crazy lady who is like i'm gonna take all your puppies like she's technically anita's friend who roger just hates (laughs) and i mean it is a story told by men and i feel like most of the time like 
if your wife has like a friend that you hate, you're probably going to paint her as the devil because she's going to be on your shit. Like Corella is on Roger. You know, like <laughs> that's about I feel. <laughs> I love it. No, this is great. <laughs> well, because like, I mean, she does like encourage Anita. She's, I mean, this, I might be like pulling like a little bit more from the live action movie, but I do feel like that's also the vibe that Corella gives off in the animated films and does comment on it quite a few times where she's like, what are you doing? Like in this like drabby little house, you could afford something way better. You could be, you could be fantastic and great. And you're trading it all in for this guy who you met in the park. Like, come on. Or like, like she definitely is like a reminder to Anita, like, Hey, like don't lose yourself though. Like you've just thrown yourself into this relationship with this guy that you just met. You just married him. Like literally like their relationship takes two seconds. And then Corella comes in and she's like, Hey, get your shit together. What are you doing? You know, again, she's not the best, the greatest friend. Mm-mm. She's definitely a toxic friend that no one should have in their life. But I'm just saying that she has some points. And I think that, like, also, like, at that time, like, it is the 60s. And you do have these, like, working women um, who are kind of seen as, like, these, like, demonized puppy killers. You know, like, and I think that that was kind of, like, the embodiment of... Corella Deville, like that seems like that's like the character that she takes on is mm-hmm. this like working woman who's independent. She's has her own company. She's doing well, you know. We're, we'll look past the animal killing for a second. It's not great, but I think that like if we if we look at it like if we look at her con- her character in the context of everything else happening like to me whenever i watch it and again maybe this is my 2020 brain but i'm like she represents like women going into the workforce and like men being like oh she wants to kill babies mm-hmm. by like you know taking like you know birth like birth control is more um it's like it's more accepted at this time like people are kind of like starting to take it so like what's like in my head like if I, you really want to psychoanalyze it sorry, please do siren if you really want to psycho- oh no oh man the cops are coming for you they don't <laughs> no. like your ideas <laughs> they hate my ideas They're hide hide more. hide <laughs> but yeah like i am um, yeah so like i mean i think that I think you could analyze corella and like her desire to like kill these puppies and like wear them could be like a man at the times idea of a working woman like in her morals of being like oh i'll kill innocents i don't care because i'm a working lady and i'm gonna do what i want mm. and i'll get whatever i want no matter what and i'll go crazy with power if i have to and that's what happens she goes totally nuts she gets obsessed on this one thing you know mm-hmm. and she goes like totally insane and drives off of a cliff right and she has like no maternal instincts whatsoever because even when you oh, see yeah. her like interacting with the dogs you know she's like eh. <laughs> gross yeah she's just like picking them up and like throwing them around mm-hmm. where like anita like the good woman you know she like is very loving and caring and is just gonna stand by roger the whole time like i think that corella is a feminist icon but i won't say that to anyone else because she also kills puppies so you just gotta look past the puppies 
Every time you say, I'll look past the puppies, I just think of the line in Community where Britta's like, I can excuse the racism, but I won't look past the animal abuse. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You'll excuse the racism? <laughs> like I said, if you look at the puppies as a symbol and not as puppies... Oh yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, she's she's absolutely a stand-in. Absolutely a stand-in for the dangers of the the working-class woman who's going to destroy the nuclear family. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's green and has no kids. Oh my god! How dare (laughs) she? And and to and to that I say, don't you dare threaten me with a good time. (laughs) Now, like I said, Tara and I watched the movie about six months after these interviews. And after our viewing, one of us had a completely different take on Cruella. I think what rubs me the wrong way about Cruella is, like, with Maleficent, there is, like, a weird begrudging respect she has for, like, Maleficent's willing to play the game. Oh, yeah. Maleficent is like, okay, I'll play, I'll win, it's fine, I've got, I've, I'm so confident I've got you all wrapped around my finger. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what rubs me the wrong way about, um... And like, and Maleficent re- does, in a way, respect um, Stefan, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that hierarchy of like what's going on there. You know, it's because they were former lovers, right? Shut the fuck! <laughs> up. Get the fuck out of here! I'm just joking. <laughs> I mean, fine. By that metric, Cruella only wants to turn the dogs into fur coats because Dalmatians killed her parents. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is which is so stupid, it's almost transcendent and good again. <laughs> um, but, like, I don't... I, I, Cru- they, make, they do the exact right things in this movie to make Cruella instantly hateable off the bat. Yes. Um... I know we're probably going to we are going to cut in some interview clips that we've done with people who are who try and mount a defense for Cruella. Uh and I don't see it. If anyone came charging into your house, uh completely disregarded your living space, talked mad shit about your dogs, only complimented them because they had nice coats while wearing a brand new fur coat, by the way. Um was chain smoking up a storm in your house when you very clearly don't smoke and then proceeded to put out her cigarettes in your fucking food while shitting all over your partner's profession and your taste in uh, uh, a partner, you would want to be nowhere near them. They're like Cruella is like actively a horrible person. And I don't think it's too much of a leap to say that. Right. I think, yes, I do agree. I think another thing to keep in mind when thinking about Cruella and every character, really, because, again, I think the characters are so two-dimensional and very black and white, but everything that we see is through Pongo's perspective, right? So, obviously, you know, Roger and Anita are going to appear as more straight characters because he's loyal to them, right? Like, he has an right. affinity for them. Whereas, like, Cruella comes in and, like, everything about her, like, threatens his home. So I think, like, just like we see with, like, the women in the beginning where they're all very exaggerated physically, right? Like, you can, again, you get that sense for their personality just by looking at them. I think it's right. just, I think it is partial. it is because we're looking at her through Pongo's eyes specifically, 
And Pongo as a character just doesn't have room for nuance at the end of the day. You know? I mean, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. But also, if we try, if we like take a step back and try to make it like think about it less extreme and like, even if she wasn't like as aggressive coming in, like that, the list of things that she does of like insult Anita and Roger's house and lifestyle, mm-hmm. uh, chain smoking in not her house. And even if we are to say like there's nuance there and like Anita asked her, asked her to stop smoking, which is what led her to put it out, to put it out on, a, on like food mm-hmm. is really shitty. And to just like. I, and then we also have to consider the fact that she fucking steals puppies to murder oh, them no, and turn them into coats. It's terrible. It's terrible. Um, I okay. So I'm not saying all this to disagree with you. She's a terrible person, a hundred percent. I guess what I'm more so questioning is the gaze through which the creators view women, right? More so than anything, right? So like when you think about. You know, they know their villain is a woman who wants to steal puppies, right? Yeah. So what are, like, the worst characters a woman can have, you know, and then dial that up to 10? And especially Uh when you present Cruella juxtaposed to Anita and Nanny, the two other female characters, right? Like, they both are very, like, Nanny, like... I think Nanny's a good contrast because I'd say because uh-huh. Corella and Nanny both stand up to men, right? They both right. are have scenes where they stand up to Horace and Jasper, but Corella is the only one who's effective at it, right? Uh huh. So like, when the movie is like, it's like it's saying like, oh no, you can do it, but like you won't, it won't be effective. Like I don't know. Like th- what really stood out to me was how Nanny tried to stand up to Horace and Jasper, and we get like a really violent response from them, right? Like this yeah. is what happens if you cross a man or don't do what a man right. says, right? Which is then how you get Anita. They're like a triangle, right? So that's how then how you yeah. get Anita. Like okay, so then just either don't stand up to them be like Anita or like you just have to be like Cruella right you have to just bulldoze and be uh-huh. like be so self-interested that and you know that like yeah. <laughs> you can just bulldoze them right? right I don't know but I think it's like I guess what bugs me the most is like they were like we want a woman as a villain who steals dogs so these are the characteristics that we chose to exaggerate right these are the characteristics that we think are not great or what would make her appeal less desirable. And then we're going right. to dial them up to 11 to get people, even more people against her. Cause at the end of the day, if, and I don't mean to like simplify it. Right. But when you boil it down, they are like, okay, so she needs to be loud. She needs to be non-apologetic. She needs to be, um, you know, like she needs to smoke women smoking. What? Um, you know, like, and things like that. Again, not saying that she's a she sh- is redeemable at all in this movie as what we see on the text, right? But right. rather like culture at the time, I right. think it makes That's sense fair. why they would present these traits, dial them up and make them villainous. Right. That's fair. And I, I and I'm not saying that like any of these traits are inherently bad. 
Like, that's not at all what I'm trying to say here. I'm saying that, like, as presented in... If, 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 a, if a man came into my house and did the same thing, I'd hate him still. Oh, you yeah. know? Like, it's, it's, it is a pattern of behaviors that are, I personally think, unacceptable from anybody. Mm-hmm. It's not necessary. It is not. I'm not viewing this. Like again, like gender swap Corella still sucks. Gender yes. swap Corella, fucking horrible person. Um, so I'm not necessarily inclined in this case to view this as necessarily a gendered thing. But your like triangle of like here are the three prominent women in the movie. Anita being like the middle point of them, mm-hmm. uh, but but also like she's the only kind of quiet and submissive one, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, she and do she's anything. the one that she doesn't do anything. No. Um, yeah, which like it's yeah no it's I I see where you're going. Mm-hmm. I just can't follow you there. You know. Yeah. No. And I I'm trying to like flush it out still because I'm just now thinking about it, but. It's like, if we think about traits that maybe Nanny and Cruella have in common, right? It's that they uh-huh. both are very firm. They both push back if they don't like the way something's going, you know? Right. They both are, I'd say, out, fairly outspoken, at least when, again, they f- don't like a situation. Um but honestly, the, at the end of the day, right, the one thing I think that, or not the one thing, but a big, there's two things that separate them, right? One is the amount of money they have, you know, mm-hmm. Cruella's high class, whereas Nanny's working class. But then also how, I guess, how they view, he, like, life at the end of the day. Right. Like, Nanny loves the puppies, therefore, and protect, wants to protect the puppies, therefore, she is moralizing, Whereas, right. but she also, but she also fails to do that. <laughs> she fails to protect the puppies in yes. the same way that Cruella fails to harvest the puppies. Yes. So that's that's another so, similarity. So like, yeah, both like outwardly, I guess, and that's the thing. They're like both outwardly powerful or pro- project that, but then like internally like inadequate or like can't actually do what they're setting out to do yeah so i'm guessing like in my head i'm like if i can find like a difference right then that's gonna like be the key where i'm missing here right is like what is this difference meanwhile meanwhile i keep finding similarities because ultimately horse and jasper also don't listen to cruella um Cause like she's like, go kill the go go fucking kill the dogs now. Mm-hmm. I don't fuck your TV show. Go kill them now. Yeah. And they're like, they they wait until she leaves, and then they're like, nah, we're gonna keep watching our TV, mm-hmm. and then and that allows the dogs to get out of there. So like they ultimately don't listen to her either. The only reason they're even putting up with it is, is because she's paying them, right? Right. So like they like she up tries to be domineering and kind of ultimately fails to do so. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that they really go after the dogs again is because their fucking paycheck is on the line yeah. and she's threatening to call the cops on them and turn them in right. for the actual theft because she has put enough distance between herself and them that she can't get fingered for it. Well, and I think that's 
I guess that's a part of it then is the tactics, right? Like, yeah, Corell is willing to go there to be like, I'll get you all arrested if you don't do this, right? Nanny wouldn't do yeah. that. Nanny asks politely and yes. tries to like throw tea, tea kettles at them. Basically, yeah, that's that's basically what it is. So while they like maybe have similar traits, they have different things motivating them. Yeah. Um and, and I think yeah. certain and I think the motivations is are, what comes down to it. Yeah, and the motivations are what make you moralizing or not. You know, like I guess yeah. again, kind of what we've been saying, right? It's all up to you and how you conduct your actions. Uh-huh. And that's gonna determine where you end up. Right. right? Because Cruella is willing to do whatever it takes to get what she wants, no matter what laws she breaks or who she steps on. You know, that's why she gets knocked down. Whereas right. Nanny is just there to like literally her job is to help Roger and Annie to take care of the house. Yeah. Exactly. She is a helper. And- and if we look, and if we look at it in that way, um, like it is, like I, I respect the shit out of Nanny for being for finding a job she's good at and sticking with it. Mm-hmm. But also, like on paper, I respect the shit out of Cruel for being like, no, I know what I want, I'm gonna get it. Right. I know what I want, I'm gonna get it. Unfortunately, what she wants is 99 dead puppies and to turn them into coats and sell them, which is the other wrinkle here. Uh, she wants to. F- she's doing it for commerce. She's selling the coats. Mm-hmm. Whereas in in the the live action the the old live action uh cinderella uh, cinderella fuck uh 101 dalmatians with glenn close she's doing it for her because she she wants like every fur coat that she can possibly get right and the thought of like a pure like dalmatian fur coat is so enticing to her that she must have it right uh, I think it's really int- like that's an interesting adaptational change, and I think that works very well for that character. But also putting her direct, like reminding us that like there are other people out there like Cruella that want these fucking coats. Mm-hmm. There are other people who will pay her to murder puppies for them mm-hmm. and turn her- their skin into fur coats. Cruella is not an isolated incident here. Cruella is indicative of something more. And yet the movie never really, like, dives into that, though. It's, like, an offhanded comment. So, again, like, kind of following in this pattern we see in these films where any sort of for-profit exchanging goods and services for money, we don't see that. Right. Yeah, but but the fact that she wants to sell the coats, um, that's actually weird, though, because, like, we do we do see some some com- commercial transactions like oh they bought ones. the puppies i guess she buys the she buys the 85 puppies yeah or 84 puppies and she uh, and we see her writing the fucking check to give to anita and roger wait so now i'm confused because i feel like either she's just gonna like charge a ton for these coats but to buy that many like yeah. none of this makes financial sense because one, she's buying all these puppies and then Horace and Jasper say, if we skin them now, like you're not going to have enough. And she's like, I'll just take six then like it's whatever. So then you wonder like what's actually motivating her here because like right. the logical sense would be wait till they're full grown so that you can maximize right. your profit. But I think, I think what you get there is the notion of like it's puppy fur. Like it is specific. It's like, it's like how when you, 
when you go to a fancy ass restaurant and they're like and they have veal on the menu Mm -hmm. you know it like it it's more expensive than regular beef because of the age at which the the meat is slaughtered because it's a lot harder to do so it requires more i see what you're saying but i think in my head i'm reading this all as like even though cruella has a ton of money she cannot successfully run a quote business Uh right that too because yeah yeah, you could upcharge mm -hmm. for it but i that obviously wasn't the intention you know maybe not i don't know I'm I'm not too sure because they never get into the financials of it. Um, exactly. Which which it, it ultimately it is a kids movie because like <laughs> as as George Lucas has taught us, children like nothing more than trade disputes and ne- price negotiations. Oh, right? right. <laughs> so captivating um, to ten year olds. So captivating, captivated. God, yeah, I'm broken because I'm like actually that that that'd be pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but like, I just I think it's interesting that like. They do like the movie does gesture at some like wider structural shit with uh Cruella and like she is d- it's not just for herself, which is one of the one of the one of the smart decisions I think those old live action remakes make mm-hmm. by just cutting all that out and being like, no, she's doing it for herself, which makes it a lot more clear cut and dry of like, oh, she's a monster, but now she's tied up in all these like systemic like commercial enterprises of like there is clearly a demand for it right mm-hmm. like somebody wants some she's not she wouldn't do this if nobody was there to buy it right i don't think no and i'd agree but it but again what but i think this kind of ties back to what we've been saying is that mm-hmm. this movie touches and alludes to so many systemic things whether they are processes or issues you know uh-huh. but we but it the the moralizing factor of this Disney movie is personal motivation. Right. Exactly. So like, like the mo- yeah, you need both. You can't just have yeah. one, I think is what we're realizing here. Well, either you can have one, but you don't get to gesture at both. Mm. Like you have to, you have to commit and yeah. whether intentionally or not doesn't matter. This movie fucking blinks on committing to that. Mm-hmm. Cause like they, they like, like, just like another conversation like just a phone conversation overheard from Cruella on the phone with like the bot with like a potential buyer just being like no I'll- okay fine fine you need it now I'll get it to you I'll get it to you it's fine and then her going into yelling at Jasper and Horace about like needing it tonight right like one scene fixes all of that but they don't but that's not what they're interested in they're interested in a simple black and white morality tale of hey killing puppies is wrong don't do it right but when you have a character like this, there's just so much you need to like dive into. And again, like you could also like, I think the cop out answer is it's from Pongo's perspective and dogs in commerce don't. Right. That doesn't really concern them, (laughs) but that's also not a, that's also, but then at the same time, I don't think they would have mentioned like the buyers, like you said, it would have been more so about skinning the puppies. Yeah. We didn't have much to say, huh? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. I was like 36, 42, 48, oh, 50. And we just kept this going. Al- this always happens. This always happens. No, this. I, I'm going to see if I have anything else. Um, yeah. Oh, God, we're good at this. I know. Um, we've gotten this in the like seven months out, but we still got it. <laughs> we're good at this. I will say, um, as a concept, 
the Twilight bark is a fucking incredible thing. I it's so good. Loved that. <laughs> was that's it's that so is the good. point in the movie where I wrote down the note. Um, the animal world in this movie is so fun. Right, and again, it's 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 gesturing again at like a larger structural apparatus that we don't get to see more of which like i am i'm the kind of person that's like no tell me all about this because like everybody in london who knows who the fuck the colonel is and has so much fucking respect for him mm-hmm. um I, I i and you you called him kind of bumbling earlier i'm like no he's just old he's just old and he's been through it he's pretty fucking cognizant for how old they make him sound mm-hmm. like but like he also does assume that like I've been doing this so long, I, I, my interpretation is right. So, uh, Fifteen stolen puddles. Fuck does that mean? Bunch of nonsense. <laughs> Goes back to bed. But that's why you have people around you to be like, hey, try that one more time. Mm-hmm. Like fucking Tibbles rules. I love that cat. That cat's great. Um, Every dog in the Twilight Bark, even though they weren't in the picture for that long all they did a great job designing those characters and the voice acting was great and making them all pretty distinct i think from one another you know like they're all kind of like fall into like shepherding dog trope especially when you get like the border collie and like lab and then Uh i think it was a i don't remember what the first dog was the great dane the great dane but they still are different enough you know whereas like the great dane is a lot more like commanding whereas the border collie is a little more gentle and the lab's a little yeah. more he thinks better right he's a little more like clever um uh-huh. i loved it but one thing we i cut us off that i just remembered is this the the xerox the style of the movie like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. you're you're excited it, rules. <laughs> it is it rules. it's so fucking pretty walt's a fucking idiot this movie looks incredible shut up you stupid old man i didn't l- love the opening shot of all the apartments but then again i think that does accurately reflect the claustrophobia of london um but it's beautiful like like every wide shot was stunning it's stunning it's like watercolors it doesn't like completely blend together to create a realistic sky but it's still beautiful um the stars the like the way like it's it i thought it it looked amazing i thought yeah th- this this is the point where i remind i like this is the point where i remi- reminded myself like oh right you don't like realism <laughs> <laughs> um because i think like fucking uh, our, our obviously our, our opinions on the on snow white are well documented at this point yeah um this looks way better than fucking Snow White. This looks way better than Pinocchio. Like this is a fucking stunning piece of piece of art. And I think I like it because I like my I like stuff to look a little rougher mm-hmm. uh, in terms of animation. Fantasia is a different thing entirely. Yeah. Um, but like the fact that like f- occasionally for like one or two frames at a time, a, a dog's head will turn and you will just see the sketch lines of like the circle with the crosshairs in it for, for perspective and, and like ref like location of like all of the facial features. It's incredible. It's amazing because it reminds you of the artificiality of everything you're seeing, mm. um, which is exactly the kind of shit I love, which is part of why I love Fantasia so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it is, it is, this movie is not content 
with letting you just sit there and forgetting that you're watching something. It is like actively by 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 having all those sketch lines in and under. I understand that it was like kind of a a, a part of the tech and part of the process. Um, but you like by that. leaving those in there. I love that because it is constantly calling attention to the fact that like there is a fourth wall here. Mm. You do not get to escape the fact that this is something manufactured for your consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and it active and it and the fact that it like still manages to bring you in while calling attention to that. Uh, not in the not as hard as someone like David Lynch does, who is constantly smashing the fourth wall and rebuilding it to remind you that like this is all constructed, so we're just going to ignore this fourth wall entirely, and I'm going to bring you into the process. Um, but this is like just like the little peaks behind the curtain are so fascinating to me, and the moments where it reminds you that somebody had to fucking make this. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the close-ups where you can see all the lo- all the fucking sca- like rough line art kind of vibrating because not every you cannot make the same strokes every time right unless you are doing like specifically just like single line line work and trying to make it as clean as possible so like the the roughness of this movie is part of its appeal to me and it rules no that makes sense i mean i'd agree i think it is a very rough movie um just in terms of the, the thickness of the lines, I noticed the vibrating. Um, one of the puppies with the crosshairs, that too. I think, though, to say, in my opinion, one, like, Pinocchio is prettier than the other, like, 101 Dalmatians. Like, I think those are, they're just too different to... Right. You know, like, to say one is object... You know, one is... Shows more of certain mastery than the other. I think both show great techniques right. in their own form, right? Right. Um, right. 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 I don't know if I prefer one over the other, though. But then again, like, like your interests are a hundred percent on process and style and aesthetic. Like that is something that's very important. And I, I'm like, oh, it's pretty. <laughs> that's yeah. fun. <laughs> And I will say, I'm not trying to say that one is objectively better than the other. Um, because, like, that, the, trying to trying to say any objective statement about art is fucking impossible. Right. Um, I personally <laughs> just think it's prettier. Because, again, <laughs> I like more impre- uh, expressionist and impressionist kind of, like, work. As opposed to just straight up realism. Right. Uh, which should be apparent if you've listened to the show up to this point. And if you haven't, thank you for sticking this long. Welcome to <laughs> welcome to board. Go listen to the old episodes. What the hell are you doing? They're very good. Um, but I th- I will say, like, the one thing that I do, that you bring up that I didn't really think about that makes me appreciate this movie more is the fact that you it is forcing you to recognize the hundreds of people who work on this. You know, not just... I mean, some people may think it was all just Walt sitting there on a little sketchboard drawing stuff, right? Yeah. But, like, I mean, if you watch the credits, you know that's not the case. Um, And it's a little nod to, like, yeah, there are people who do this. You know, there are people that you don't see who put hours and hours of work into this product. Um, Recognize and validate us. The artistic style of 101 Dalmatians is well known and talked about. As I mentioned earlier, I couldn't read anything about the movie without someone mentioning the switch to Xerox animation and the reception to the look. In general, our guests agree with Tara and love the way the movie looks. 
Andy said it's one of his favorite parts of the film. There's a lot of reasons that I I like 101 Dalmatians. Um, to some extent, there's... Um, I, I enjoy it on the aesthetic level. It's kind of the first... Um, whatchamacallit for Disney. Um, It's the first Xerox Disney movie. And I feel like you can really tell that like aesthetically, it's completely different from everything that came before where, you know, like everything before was like super clean and, you know, like very, very, you know, well lined and stuff. 101 Dalmatians has this like a little more like scratchier look to it. Um, that I really like. Uh, it's got, you know, it captured and the whole move to like um, for the time period, like contemporary London thing. Um, it's It's got a really cool look that I like a lot compared to a lot of stuff that came before and after. Yeah. Yeah. Because with the Xerox method specifically, it allows those outlines, the black outlines to stay in. So it kind of gives it a bit more of like a, not a grungier look, but I guess compared to like the cell animation, it does look a bit like. Yeah. It's almost like it at times gets a little like pop arty. I feel like Mm -hmm. it's got like just a really like, like cool, like almost like bohemian aesthetic to it compared to a lot of things like describing anything made by the Walt Disney Corporation as bohemian is a little bit of a stretch, but like it's as close as it gets. (laughs) (laughs) It was the sixties. But it's got a really, really cool look to it for me. But Xerox wasn't the only technology used to animate the film. When watching the film, I noticed that the parts where Cruella's car drives in the snow looked different. And then this discussion ended up happening. I have one more thing. Okay. And this is kind of going back to technique and animation. What were your thoughts on when Cruella was driving in the snow? Like that specific animation. Yeah. What the? It feels like that was like rotoscope. That's what I was thinking too. Um, But I'm not sure because the snow. It, 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 it can't have been actual snow because cars don't move through snow like that. No. It might it might have been like like styrofoam or something. I'm not sure. Uh, I did not do research into this because why would I bother? <laughs> when Alex um, already did it. When Alex did all the research already. Rotoscope. Because like they've done rotoscoping with cars before. Well, uh, they did and, it with like the carriage in Pinocchio. Um, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. So, according to a random YouTube video from Gabrielle Farina, posted August 5th, 2010, they did use rotoscoping for that scene. And it's the scene I was thinking of, the one where she, like, drives right into the snow and the snow kind of falls. Yeah. Like that, and they she said has that, to, like, back up and, yeah, that, yeah, that, that feels like rotoscoping. Yeah, because yeah, that makes sense. It felt way out of place compared to everything else that i saw yeah it's it's very yeah it feels very much like rotoscoping i i that whole sequence is pretty cool because of like every time like the car crashes in that sequence are phenomenal just the moment when horace and jasper come down the hill and hit cruella's car and and they're just it's very good and just the fact that like as she's getting like as she's getting progressively angrier and driving 
more irresponsibly. The car is, like, peeling away and, like, getting more visibly monstrous. Mm -hmm. Like, the headlights already kind of have, like, eyelids down, like it's glaring at uh, the the puppies and the Dalmatians. But as soon as that hood comes off and just the engine's just flaring fire like a fucking dragon and her eyes are just, like, pulsating, it rules. It's, It's so cool. It's very good. It is very good. If I didn't forget so much of our pre-production process or maybe watch the movie closer to when we conducted these interviews, I would have remembered this conversation with Morgan. Um, well, like, they actually, like, introduced, like, using models and, like, using, like, different, like, 3D elements. Like, when um, Corella's like, car is, like, racing through the snow, like, there was, like, a model car that they used in that. And, like, they used, like, the model car with, like, sand, to like replicate the snow and then animated like over it with um i'm trying to think of like what they used to animate over it cannot think of what it's called but it basically they like animated over these like actions and then like they used um different like rigging to like cause um like different movement in animation that like hadn't really been seen before. Like there's this scene where like the puppies are like in the back of this truck and the truck is moving back and forth. And you can like really see like the different levels and dimensions of animation because they actually had a dolly mm. like moving with the animation moving also. So like you see like there's a lot of levels that I think went into it and it was really crafted well. That makes sense. So is it like road, like do you, rotoscoping? Is that what it is, or is it mm-hmm. doing something different? Yeah. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah, that hey. sounds like rotoscoping. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. So basically, like using that more in this film than they had in previous mm-hmm. films. That makes sense. Yeah. Like they just explored it like a little bit more, and like they, mm-hmm. like I, I've like watched like different things like about animators talking about this film, and like they just seemed really excited, like. I feel like our, I've watched interviews about people like talking about like Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and like they're also like excited but like they're kind of like yes this is how we do this and this is how it's done mm-hmm. where like with the animators who were talking about like working on 101 Dalmatians they were like yeah we were doing this and like they just seem really fired up and like passionate about it and I feel like you can see that whenever you watch it because like it does feel unlike Home on the Range like 101 Dalmatians you can feel the hurt and like care that went into it. Mm. Morgan also praised the styling of the film and appreciated how it conveyed a specific time period. Um, I feel like the style is very 60s, mm-hmm. which I love. Like, I mean, I think it was shot, or I think that they made it in the 60s. Um, but, like, yeah, you can just, like, tell, like, every, like the clothes that they wear and um, just, like, how the characters are stylized. It's, everyone matches, like, Pongo and Perdita kind of match with Anita and Roger and, like, you see, like, this opening scene with, like, the, diff- the dogs with, like, their different owners. And, like, they all kind of, like, match. And it's really, it's gritty, but it's also very put together. Mm. Like, you can definitely like, see, like, the gritty, like, lines and, like, animation strokes. And um, it, like, it's chaotic and it's, like, a little messy. But, like, also it's very, like, I don't know, it's just very put together. And I think that also kind of represents our main characters a bit because, like, Roger's just kind of, like, flying by the seat of his pants and Anita's just kind of going along with it. Yeah. So it kind of, like, it adds to the story. It's messy, but it's intentional. Huh? It's messy, but it's intentional, almost. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's definitely, like, I mean, like, whenever Corella comes in with, like, her cigarette, like, it's ashing all over the place and, like, there's smoke and the... She, her lines are just really chaotic like the lines in her hair and like even like in her coat 
is just like very chaotic, but you can tell that like there's a purpose to it. And like there's a reason why everything's so like hardly drawn and like the lines are so hard and everything's so rigid, rigid and messy. Like it's not just like a piece of shit film that's like, oh, they didn't put a work into it. It's just they had like a very specific style and aesthetic that they went with on this film. Going back to Andy for a minute, he also talked a bit about the animation style and the way that it represents the characters, specifically Cruella, and he ties it into the film's general message of heteronormativity. Like, I think if there if there's one, like, I think central criticism that I do have for, like, 101 Dalmatians um, is that it does feel, like, very, very heteronormative in that regard mm-hmm. um, and just just normative in general, like... You know, it's about, you know, you know, like young couples getting married and, you know, people starting families and all that. And then, you know, this single old lady comes in and is like, I'm going to kill your babies and wear them as a coat. There's so much you can unpack there. Oh, my God. Well, it's interesting you say, like, heteronormative, especially because, like, I feel like in the movie, the dogs are so heteronormative. Yeah. But, like, in the book, Pongo has, like, two women, like, two do- two dogs. Oh, really? So he, there's one, like, it's him and Mrs., like, they're the main couple. Mm-hmm. But then they have 15 dogs, and I guess Mrs., like, can't, like, feed them all because she just mm-hmm. gets tired. So they find Perdita, like, as like um like a like a like a oh, what's the word um she's just out on her own you know abandoned yeah. and so they bring her in and she ends up helping Mrs. take care of the puppies so Pongo has like like a double situation going on here like a polyam sort of yeah, thing going on yeah like. which you're like which I was reading that and I was like wait what that yeah. happened and oh, then- that's that's so interesting and I feel like that's that's so different from the movie, which I feel like it, it is so heteronormative and it, it is so like, you know, let's like, put these couples together and do all that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like that just like opens up like a whole di- like that. It just like adds so much to like that reading of the movie. Like, right. Well, it makes sense, too, because like they're making the 101 dalmatians is in production in the 50s right so that is like the time of heteronormativity in the united states like that is like the post-war white picket fence nuclear family suburban lifestyle everything was going on so Mm -hmm. the fact that they would alter it and then like we get this out of the 60s like totally makes sense yeah yeah and it's it's very interesting in that regard because i feel like artistically it's doing something very like not artistic aesthetically it's doing something very very new visually for the walt disney company at the time Mm -hmm. um and it's kind of like stretching what you know we kind of think of as disney at the time period um but yeah like story-wise um i feel like it's i think it's one of the first times they do a story in like a a relatively like modern setting it is um but it it feels like so traditional values in Mm -hmm. a way Mm -hmm. yeah and when you think about it even the aesthetics of it i feel like match more cruella's style than 
the tradition of it all, right? Like right. because it is rough around the it's literally rough around the edges, right? You right. see the lines and like Cruella, I think as a character fits very well in that aesthetic. You know, right. imagine Cruella in like the cell animation style. Mm-hmm. Like how would that like would that translate as well, I wonder. Yeah, like the way that it does like like the monochrome backgrounds and mm. stuff where it's like let's have this like whole gray city background or like a whole like green background and stuff and like j- just the way that it like really uses these like solid colors along with you know this like crazed artist villain um i think and i d- yeah i don't know if it, that would have jived as well with like the i guess I, I I don't really know where like Disney formalism like ends as like a yeah it's weird because like the Disney formalist style they really like established this in the first five film like I guess Pinocchio Snow White and Bambi are the big ones mm-hmm. um and then Walt wanted to continue with that but then World War Two happened so he had to kind of right. like shelve it and he went towards more like the conventional cartoony style so then mm-hmm. we go to the fifties and we kind of get back to it. I would argue it's not as formalist as the earlier films tried to be, but like we kind of return to it in the 50s. And then in the 60s, they completely abandon it because it's it's expensive. And Walt is mad at his animators and doesn't want to do animation anymore, but like he's still doing it, you know? So it's this whole thing. Right. So really, like, 100 Walt Animations, I think, honestly, in my opinion, Sleeping Beauty is where we see the break. Okay. Simply because um, they had a new artistic director and he wanted it to be like, that he called it like a living tapestry. He wanted it to look like a right. Renaissance painting come to life kind of a situation. And I think that's very like anti-formalist, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you look at it, it's so sharp and everything about it is angular. Like it's, it has a style to it, right? Right. So I'd say that is kind of like the stop of the formalism. And okay. And we don't really see it again, I'd argue, until, like, the Renaissance is, mm-hmm. I think, when you, we begin to see it again. Because they kind of have, like, the, the 60s and 70s are rough. And then, uh, what's his face? Eisner comes in. Okay, yeah. Then it kind of, like, all kind of uh, comes together again is mm-hmm. what I've been noticing. So, Yeah, that makes sense. Roger has a big nose, and that always bugged me as a kid. I don't know. I think he's cute. Oh, he's cute. It's just specifically in the scene where it's funny watching it now, but like his hat, like when it's wet and over his face, you just see the nose. Oh, it's so cute. Oh, it's adorable. The two, like, one of my biggest fucking phobias and just bad touch, bad feeling, bad vibes, bad vibes, bad vibes. If any of my clothes get wet, I have to change my entire outfit. Right. I. Like I, if if my clothes get wet, I proceed to have a have a meltdown. Um, but wa- watching them like just kind of struggle through getting knocked into this pond is the cutest shit. It's so it's a good. good. Meet, it's a good meet cute. I will it's say it's an extremely good meet cute. I also think it's funny that uh, in the in in your write up, you said that they had to make sure that they didn't have a dog wedding, but they still had a dog wedding. It was specifically like 
Pete wrote it so that they would have vows too and like actually yeah. have like a human wedding but between the two of them so this way he was kind of like they're still like you know it insinuates more so than blatantly it, yeah. states right and it's I think it's way cuter this way I think it's so fucking cute well because you don't need Whereas, all of that right yeah because because if you actually had them do like the, a whole ceremony you are suddenly doing a Parks and Rec bit where they're marrying the two penguins <laughs> Corella also calls Roger a fool and a bash, bashful Beethoven. Uh, and his, uh, the, uh, fucking, uh, he, she calls him Sir Galahad at one point. Yeah. I'm just like, damn, get she's, his ass. She's just, she's going for it. She's um, murdering this poor man. You can He's see- just trying to write his songs. Leave him alone. You can see a few of the Lady and the Tramp dogs in yeah, the pet shop. Yeah, during the during the during the twilight bark uh sequence it it it's very cool and that's when like that's when we we this is like one of the first indications we get of like real heavy asset reuse so i would call this more of an easter egg i mean fair but also we're starting to see like there is more panel reuse in this internally than we've seen before what do you mean by that at the start of at the start of the movie, they like Roger lights his pipe like five or six times, and it's all the same fucking animation oh, sequence. Oh yes, I know what you mean. It's like they use the same two back forth, back forth, back forth to show a movement. Uh huh. Oh, I see what you're yeah. saying. I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah. yes. So we're we're starting to see like reuse to cut costs. Yes. Which, uh, it's we will obviously see it way more in a way more extreme sense coming going forwards. But, like, this was the first point where I'm like, we have seen him try to light his pipe in the exact same way, like, three times. I did notice that, yes. It's so, like, yeah. this is all internal, though, is the yes. one thing I do want to say. It's when we see it, like, crossing movies. We hit that yeah. in, like, the 70s. Yeah. So, well, we're, we're coming up on that fairly fairly quick. right up. So excited. I just Ooh, also want to talk about, I thought the concept of what's my crime <laughs> Oh my god! Was I, okay, so funny. Okay, 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 okay. It's fucking. What's my crime? Is straight out of fucking RoboCop or Starship Troopers? Really? It's incredible. Yeah, not like literally, okay. but like the concept of that uh, kind of game show is very Paul Verhoeven esque. Um, it's this this weird dystopic like game show where we're using like the using the penal system as entertainment yeah uh and it's wild that the fucking criminals are the ones watching it because my like if this were anything else trying to make like an incisive point about how we treat like criminals and poverty and crime it would be like the wealthy elites like the rich people watching this like it's some sort of hunger games or something Mm mm-hmm um, but to just have this idly thrown in there is kind of fucking bonkers. Oh, it's so funny. Well, yeah, cause like you said, it's Jasper and Horace watching it and, and everyone they, like, on the show the is dude. incompetent. <laughs> and they like know the dude too. Yes. And it's, you're just sitting there and you're like, oh my gosh. And when I, and it's just like the rules of it also were, you know, they're like, if everyone else can guess what crime you did, then it's, you it's, get to go on vacation for two weeks after you serve your debt to society. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, it's like, no, it, it's like if they have 10 guesses if they can't guess it you get vacation after you get out of prison it's the fucking bizarro version of the old nick nickelodeon game show figure it out yeah where fucking 
children would be like, hi, my special talent is I look like fucking Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> and if you fig- if you if they can't figure it out, you get to go on vacation. But if they figure it out, you get slimed. Well, and I feel like a show like What's My Crime would only work in like the 1960s because now you just Google the person. Like, I mean, you wouldn't know who it is walking in, but I feel like information is so easily like accessible also I mean, accidentally yeah, I, accessible that like you just couldn't yeah no <laughs> you'd yeah, be like no, it's it it's an incredible concept it's very it, it feels like something out, it really does feel like something out of like southland tales or robocop or like escape from new york that kind of wild fucking dystopic yeah sci-fi thing it's it's rad it's very good time now for everybody's favorite guessing game what's my line As it turns out, What's My Crime is actually a direct parody of the massively popular television game show, What's My Line, a panel game show that ran on CBS from 1950 to 1967. In the game, four celebrity panelists ask guests questions to try and determine their line of work. Typically, guests are your run-of-the-mill person. Sometimes you'll get people with unique jobs. And each episode ends with a special celebrity mystery guest. Now we come to the special feature of our program, the appearance of our mystery. <laughs> Panelists ask that person questions blindfolded. Ask my friends on the panel to put on their blindfolds. Jerry Lewis has got his on. Get that up where it belongs there, Lewis. And believe it or not, Walt Disney was a guest on the show on November 11th, 1956. I think I, I, think I know that voice from personal acquaintance. Are you beloved by millions and millions of children? It's Gulliver. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that would have to be yes, Bennett. I, I, can I take a stab? What do yes, you, you can take a stab. I think it's Walt Disney. You're right. <laughs> to use the falsetto because that's the mouse. <laughs> that would have given it all away, Walt. After the panelists successfully guess Walt as the mystery guest of the episode, show host John Daly takes a few moments to ask him questions about the state of his company, specifically the Disneyland Park and his future endeavors. Daly specifically asks Walt about his television show, which premiered about two years earlier. And I find that his answer reflects the picture that we've been presenting in this podcast, especially when he mentions his feelings about movies. But I'm more interested in, in what uh, you think now about television after two or three years of exposure. Well, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. You get to uh, reach people in a sort of an immediate way. With uh, the pictures, you work for years, and uh, then it's quite a while before you know how uh, what you're working on is going to come out, how it's going to be received. But with television, you know, uh, well, in a very short time. Do you find it's, it's a burden water over the other working habits? Or oh, no. No, I think some... I found it very stimulating. Very stimulating. For the whole staff, everybody, it's been a, a great stimulus for the whole oh, organization. That's fine. That's good, mm-hmm. you know, because that makes it sound like Mr. Walt Disney's going to stay in television, which is what I really wanted him to do. <laughs> Walt, thanks I very think I much. Made it. <laughs> it's glad to have you with us, and nice thanks that you've been our guest. Will you say hello to Bennett? And A 
big thank you to our three guests on this episode. You can hear more from Andy on his podcast called My Girlfriend Hates My Podcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at Hates Podcast. You can hear more from Jenna on her podcast, The Opinionated Podcast. For show updates, follow The Opinionated Podcast underscore on Instagram. And as always, you can follow Morgan at Modane on Instagram. Thank you all so much for listening this week. Join us next time for The Sword in the Stone. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers.